Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these men leading us in song through this wonderful uh, time of song and worship. We thank you for the time that each of them puts in to help us to sing to each other and sing to you. And truly, your wisdom is perfect. Lord, we rejoice in your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that we can sing, that you've given us voices to uh, laud you. You are deserving of all worship. And to think that we're going to join the angels, and we do join the angels in singing before you, that constantly before you, there are those saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What an awesome thing it will be to be in your presence. Forgive us for often forgetting your glory, forgetting how awesome and other that you are from us. Forgive us for um, just not having that uh, high view of you, oh God, and that reverence that you so deserve. So we come before you, even trembling this morning, just thanking you for your greatness to us, your kindness to us in Christ. And Lord, we know we're gathered here this morning voluntarily to praise you, to trust you, to look to you, to listen to you, to be encouraged, oh God. We thank you for each Sunday that we're able to do this, to gather together. Lord, it's for your glory, but it's also for our good. And I pray that you would help us with that. Help us to see your work in our lives, even through our corporate gatherings. Father, we pray for this church, that you would continue to strengthen her. Lord, we pray for um, those that are serving in various capacities and the needs that we have uh, in this congregation. We thank you for those who serve, from the sound team to the fellowship team to this uh, worship team to all the behind-the-scenes things that go on as far as our online ministry and keeping things updated. And uh, we thank you for our finance team and working hard, getting things together for uh, the new budget uh, coming up this, uh, this month and really this uh, today, voting on that. Lord, we lift that to you. Father, we just thank you for what you're doing in this church, and we pray that you would use this church continually for your good or for our good and your glory, Lord. We pray that you would do that. We don't just lift up ourselves only, but other churches, Lord. We lift up Big Flats Baptist Church this morning down in Fleetwood, that you would be with them, make yourself known to them, Lord, as they gather together. Father, that you would encourage them and help them, we pray. Father, we um, lift up our other, other churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We um, pray for um, Sovereign Grace um, Bible Chapel, Lord, that you would be with them, that you would make yourself known to them. We thank you for them and what you're doing uh, in their uh, lives and in their church, you would just continue to work in them and through them. Father, we pray for the persecuted church as well. We know that you tell us to pray as if we're in chains with them. You say, blessed are the persecuted, for they um, are, are the ones that ultimately will receive the kingdom. Uh, theirs is a kingdom of heaven, your word says. And so we thank you for those words from the Sermon on the Mount that uh, give us hope in persecution that you told us in your word that if we uh, are going to follow you, that it is uh, possible that we will suffer persecution as godly saints. And while we don't experience that if, at, at, as much in the West as others do in other places, we, we lift them to you. 
Lord, we pray for the persecuted church in Egypt this morning, that you would be with them. And while it's freer than some countries in, in Africa and the Middle East, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen believers there, that you would continue to send missionaries to them, and Father, that you would bring many to faith in Christ. Father, we lift up the unreached people groups. Uh, we, we pray for these faithfully, Lord, because we desire to see you glorified in all nations. And we want you to uh, get your inheritance uh, that you uh, was promised to you, Lord, that you would redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there's some that have not called on you from various tribes, tongues, and nations. Father, we lift up the Tongren Bonan people of China in central China, that God, you would uh, pierce not just the center part of that country, but Lord, that you would take your gospel and that many would come to know you, that you would send missionaries with the hard work of not only translating the Bible, but uh, bringing um, great hope to those who desperately need it, that you would save uh, those out of that tribe. Father, we continue to lift up troubled places around the world. We think of Sudan and the war in Ukraine and uh, those refugees in Turkey and Syria still from the earthquake earlier this year. We lift them all to you. Father, for those that are grieving the loss of loved ones, that you would be with them. We continue to lift up the Lawrence and Poe family, Lord, after the loss of Paulette um, a few weeks ago, that... Uh, as that's still raw, that you would continue to comfort them. Uh, but thank you that uh, she's with you in heaven, Lord, and we can rejoice that she has received her reward. Father, for others in this uh, community that are grieving, we think of the Brown family and others who have uh, various cancer uh, diagnoses and things like that, that you would um, discomfort in a way that only you can. Father, we thank you for our expectant mothers. We continue to pray for them. Uh, we pray that uh, you would be with Ellie and Sarah, Lord. Um, that you would protect their babies, Lord, and that you would bring them to full term, and that you would bring a smooth delivery. We pray for Joelle as well, Lord, as she uh, is, is great with child and um, is supposed to deliver any day this week, and that we just pray that you would comfort the Rios family and be with them, Lord, as they um, approach uh, their delivery date. Father, we thank you for um, the healing that you're bringing to Lloyd and uh, for Danny as well after Danny's cancer surgery. Uh, Lord, for David Lemire's mother as she heals from surgery uh, a week ago or more. Uh, thank you for um, Hunter's uh, wrist healing, that you would be with him. And uh, Brandon, Lord, that he's not able to have to use the crutches anymore. So we're praising you for that as well. Lord, thank you that you are our healer, that we can turn to you. And while we're in fallen bodies and uh, we, we, this mortal will put on immortality, we do thank you for your, your graces each day of healing us of physical abnormalities. Lord, I pray that my voice would hold up um, in preaching your word this morning. We pray too for uh, members in transition, that you'd be with them, uh, that you would continue to guide and direct them. Father, we pray for um, Tim Bullington as he preaches this morning down at Christ Alone. We continue to lift up uh, our sister church uh, plant down there, that you would be with them, strengthen them, uh, uphold them, Lord, uh, and, and give them a grace in these early days as a church. Father, finally, as we turn to your word, would you not just be glorified in the preaching of your word, but our obedience to it? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Trust you all are doing well and uh, having a good start to your summer, uh, enjoying kind of the cool mornings. We've been in the 40s in the morning, and I just love it. It's been great. Um, we are going to continue our study in Genesis uh, chapter 15, so you can be turning there. And um, we are 
officially 28% of the way through Genesis. So you guys can be encouraged by that. You can be encouraged. I'm, encur- I'm encouraged. Sorry, that, that's just, sorry, that just drops like lead, doesn't it? It's like, we're going to be in here how long? I don't know if uh, the, the, uh, the Finneys have told you, but they, they came to this church uh, from a church in Mooresville. We transferred their membership, and they said, well, we just love this church. You know, what, what new, uh, we had finished up Mark, right, when they came. They said, so what are we going to embark on? And we said, the, the book of Genesis. And they're like, okay. And I said, well, what's wrong? And they're like, we just spent five years in Genesis down in Mooresville. I said, you should have been listening. So it's been awesome to see what the Lord is doing um, through this and showing us the gospel. Every major doctrine is right here in this book, so it's not a waste of our time by any means. It is God's authority, his, his um, counsel, and his uh, inspired word is useful for preaching. Um, and and we, we see that in the, the life of Abram here that we've been uh, excited to, to look at. We are going to finish chapter 15, Lord willing, today, and then next week we're going to do that second part of that sermon uh, short series on uh, fathers for Father's Day uh, that we started with Mother's Day, and then we'll head back to Genesis 16 at the end of the month, Lord willing. Um, and we're excited that we have some baptisms on the, on the schedule, and we'll be able to rejoice uh, with what God is doing in some um, some new believers' lives, and so we're excited about that. So would you stand as we read God's Word this morning? Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> and this is the Word of God. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought, these, brought him to all of these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace." You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the river, great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. <coughs> Excuse my throat. I might have to pause a few times. I think all that 
Canadian smoke is all down in my lungs. So we can um, be looking at God's word this morning as we uh, continue where we left off. We see here God's covenant. Have you ever seen when you sign up for maybe a new cell phone or uh, you're going through the legal uh, identifications of all the things that you may be signing up for when you buy a certain product. It's called Terms and Conditions, and it's about 156 pages long, and then at the bottom, it, it just skips to the bottom and says, just sign here. Does that ever scare anybody like it scares me? It, it's, it's, it's scary because there's so much legal jargon in there that's connected to what you thought you were doing of just buying a product or just making an agreement for a cell phone contract. You read those terms and conditions, there's stuff in there. There's surprising stuff in there that you um, may not, and it's unlikely, would even encounter, but it's there. You think about insurance policies, bank accounts, all the different things that we do have contracts and agreements. We sign our name to them, and they're legally binding. They're extremely important documents. Our signatures if you will, are the seal of our agreement with what we are signing. We ought to think about it. We ought to read the small print when we pay our taxes. We ought to think about the small print when we're signing up for anything or when we're paying for something. Even the agreements on our card, uh, credit cards and debit cards, the issuer agreements um, are, are full of legal jargon. All this to say is when we look at this term covenant in the scriptures, that's really what it means, a contract or an agreement. And we've been looking at God's covenant all the way through the book of Genesis. In fact, the author of Genesis, Moses, is one who obviously was in covenant with God and brought the great covenant from um, Mount Sinai. And we see a lot of parallels here in this text, even to the Sinaitic covenant. We see God's grace. We look back, there's even parallels back to Adam and what God spoke to Adam. And yet in the same period, we need to take this all in context of what God is doing because his promise, as we've been looking at over the last few weeks, has been revealed but also in a revelatory way over time. Remember, God's time is not our time. God didn't make Sarai uh, fertile all of a sudden yet. There was challenges with him going to Egypt with the famine, coming back, and there's people in the land. And yet all these promises that we've looked at are yes and amen, and, and uh, a, uh, Abram is looking to those by faith. We know that from the text, and it's accounted for him, to him as righteousness, as we saw in verse 6. But the problem is that there continues to be this, this sense that it's just one step beyond Abram, and it's, it's challenging his faith. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, Lord, I believe you, I, I read your word, but it's, it's just one step out, and what are you doing in my life? Why? We might even see, are you so cruel? We might uh, be tempted to question the Almighty. But when we look here at this passage, we see a great conversation. But remember from earlier last week that we looked at this in chapter 15, that it's in the context of a vision. Look at verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So that's important. It doesn't discount all that he's seeing in this vision. Remember, we've, we've seen that Moses, the author of Genesis, is establishing that Abram is, in a way, a prophet. 
he is going to foretell, he's going to fulfill, and he's going to foretell God's word uh, to many in his generation, let alone in his own progeny, as uh, we'll see later in the book of Genesis. So this is all happening, and he questions, remember what we looked at last week in verse 5, or verse 2 rather, whether uh, Eliezer of Damascus his, would be his heir. And God says, no, it'll come from your own body. He says, look at this number of the stars, verse 5, that if you're able to number them. And he believed God. He believed Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The beauty of entering into a covenant by faith that this contractual agreement is what God is accomplishing and we are called to respond in faith. In fact, we see that in the context of Hebrews and other passages in the New Testament that God is the one who gives this faith. Isn't this amazing? We, we, in the story of Genesis, you, you see the world hurtling towards destruction. You see the, the flood happen, and on the out back side of the flood, after Babel, their continued rebellion, we see now that God takes out Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. I want to look at this passage in three points when we look at this covenant here. First of all, we're returning to this call uh, to covenant with God a call to covenant with God. We'll see that in verse one. Secondly, we're gonna see that there is a sense of what God is doing in Abram's life in the present, which we would call the contractual agreement of the covenant, what he promises to do in his lifetime, and then beyond his lifetime, which point three we'll talk about, is the certainty of the covenant, which he not only allies his fears for the present, but ultimately the future as well. And we've talked about that before. The beauty of a covenant in, in Christ is that we, we receive it in real time, but we're realizing that Christ died b- before the foundation of the world. And so we're receiving this in the sense of in our time and space, but it's something that God has set forth from eternity past. And we know that we have a future in eternity, but God's outside of time, and we know that we have a great future grace that is yet to be realized. We reflected on this even in the sense of communion last week that christ has died for our future sin think on that one you discouraged as a christian christ has already been to your future think about that it's a glorious truth of scripture how often we fail to just we're just looking backwards and saying god thank you for forgiving me help me try better help me try i'll do it again jesus and i'll try it again and and we just get in this treadmill that is not gospel oriented and yet our salvation is full we've been saved justification we're being sanctified we're being saved even today in a way we're being delivered from sin and satan and ourselves and then ultimately we're going to be delivered in the future we are going to die and yet death is lost its sting because of the resurrection we have great hope in the future because of what christ has done and we see that in the context of this great covenant with abram that Jesus is pointing us to himself through this covenant with Abram, the covenant-keeping God, because God is one. Jesus is present. So let's look at this call to covenant, our first point here. Notice verse 1. He said to him, I am the Lord. There's no greater truth, there's no greater foundation for salvation than the acknowledgement of who is God. The preaching of the gospel doesn't preach a a, a God who is afar off, but a God who is near. 
The gospel preaches good news of a God who isn't afar off but has become flesh and dwelt among us. He's a God that's calling us to covenant. Many will say that God hides himself, and why is it that he goes to great pains to hide himself if he is so great? And the answer is, he has not hidden himself. He displays himself in all of his glory, and through his creation, and through his people, and through his praises. God is on the throne, and he is exalting himself every day. It's because of our own sinfulness that we do not recognize this great and awesome God. We are frail. We are dust. We are sold and deceived by sin. And so this call to covenant, notice he reminds Abram of what he's done. He tells him to look backwards. He says, I am the Lord. We could stop right there and preach a whole sermon on just those four words. God is to be glorified. He is God. You are not And so God, in his grace, look at what he's done for Abram. He brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And the God who brings us out is a God who brings us into something. He brought Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he brings him in to the land to possess it. Isn't it interesting that Abram is living in what will be the promised land, and yet it's not yet his This call to covenant, isn't this what he does for us in Christ? He calls us out of our sin and depravity, and he calls us in his grace to take us from that into a land that is plentiful, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's ultimately ruled by himself. We come to him. He is satisfying. He is all worthy of our worship. He is a treasure to behold, and to treasure we will continue to uncover into eternity future. God cannot be exhausted. He cannot lose his strength. He cannot lose the resources that he provides. He is that treasure. And he's called us out. He's called us out of our sin and into Christ. And so just as we see with Abram here, the call was a call to covenant. But secondly, in the midst of this first point, I think it's important to see that God is the one who takes the initiative. Aren't you thankful? If it, if, if it was dependent upon us to take the initiative, we would never come. We cannot see. We are blind. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, as Ephesians 2 says. It's not that God's just throwing us a life preserver. We were dead. He had to raise us from the dead and lift our heads that we could behold him and know who he is. And this is what he's doing. He's calling us to life. And if you don't know Christ this morning, he's calling you at this very point to come to him that you might have life. And so there's a call to covenant. But secondly, we see in verse 8 here that there is a contractual agreement of this covenant. Look at what he says, this conversation that he has with him. He says, but he said, O Lord God. Again, the same God who has revealed himself, I am the Lord. He questions and he says, "How how will I know that I shall possess it? And whether we like it or not, it is a question. We see that he's promising something. We believe him. We know that from verse 6. And yet he hasn't obtained it yet. And he's got a question that's human nature. We question it. How am I going to possess it? You, you've shared this four-part promise with me, Lord, that I'm going to be a, 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 you know, as, as numerous as the stars and the sands of the sea. And, and I don't even have a son yet. And you, you promise that we'll have a land, but it's, it's full of uh, warring tribes, you promised that you're going to do something, that you're going to, you're going to accomplish this, but I can't see it. 
Maybe you're like that. God's word tells you that he is sanctifying you, but you can't see it. Maybe you're struggling over old sins and you're like, I thought I was past this. How in the world am I so discouraged? How am I dropping down in the dirt? But the God who raised Jesus from the dead is a God who is the sovereign Lord over your sanctification. He will do it. It will come to pass. You can trust him. His wisdom is well beyond ours. And how is he going to use that? We don't know. But he uses even our own sin to make us more dependent upon himself. And so we see here that he calls into question, how am I going to possess it? Now, notice that God doesn't immediately answer it. We'll come back to this when we see him answering this in verse 13. But notice that he almost interrupts his question and starts talking about sacrifice. He says, he said, bring me, and notice he asks for four different um, uh, animals, basically, or four groups of animals to sacrifice. He said, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So we got cattle, we got goats, we got rams, and we got birds. Notice that these are in parallel with what Noah brought on the ark as clean animals ready for sacrifice. And there's no doubt that this is not only part of the contractual agreement, which we'll get to in a moment, because sacrifice has to be made and a covenant is made, it's cut, but we'll also see that this is a parallel to what's going on at Sinai, that the sacrificial system is being set up, that man cannot approach this holy God without atonement. And so it foreshadows what is to come at Sinai that these clean animals are being sacrificed on behalf of Abram, who's unclean, let alone all of mankind. And so he tells him to bring these things. Part, again, of covenant, really what it means in the Hebrew is ultimately to cut a covenant. That as this covenant is being made, we'll see in a few verses here, that as the, the flaming torch goes through them, it's a contractual agreement between two parties. And if they were to break these, this covenant, they would be as those who are filleted right there on the ground. But there's instruction here. Look at verse 10 of this contractual agreement. It says, and he brought him all of these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half against the other. Again, there's a, a sense of, of a finality for the, the animals, of course, but there's also this cutting of uh, two parties here, and they're being sacrificed ultimately to the Lord. But notice it says that he did not cut the birds in half, and while it seems mysterious about why that's the case, we don't really know, but even in the Levitical law that sometimes turtle doves were offered, <coughs> excuse me, um, in uh, full form. And mainly those were provided for uh, to the poor um, because they couldn't afford larger sacrifices. But notice that these are the, the sign of the covenant, ultimately, that God is uh, portraying. Again, this is in a vision. So we're seeing this all happen. Excuse me. And so in verse 11, he follows up with this, and he says, and when the birds of prey come down on the, and they came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So you have this, this, uh, this foreboding of, of um, a hovering of destruction over even the sacrifice. There's a, uh, a foreboding even in the future of how covenant with God and uh, sinful man is ultimately being pushed against by the enemy um, and ultimately against the kingdom of darkness. 
and there's a sense that there is a foreboding, again, what is to come of the great terror of Sinai, the dark clouds that formed around it that we'll see uh, later on in Exodus that you would uh, look at and remember the thunderings and all these kinds of things, very much parallel to this passage. And then even drawing the lines back to earlier in Genesis, that notice that the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Remember that, that God worked in Adam's life by putting him to sleep and creating woman? And God working in and through this vision to teach Abram what he's ultimately going to do. But at the end of verse 12, it says, and behold, the dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, fell upon Abram. There's this sense of the great holiness of God, the great uh, uh, weight of sin, the great things that God ultimately has to accomplish in order to make these things possible. It is not an easy task on God's part, but it is uh, an act of faith on Abram's part. And so we see here that this contractual agreement between two parties, just like we see in contracts today, whether that's marriage or whether that's a contract with a company or something else, there's two parties, and both of those parties are listing their terms and conditions, and then they're putting them into practice, and they're sealing it, as I said in our introduction, with a signature. But in the context of Old Testament, let alone uh, the New Testament sacrifice of Christ, it's signed in blood. It's, it's till death do us part. That's why we say this in marriage vows. There is a vow, there's an agreement, and nothing can separate that but our own death. Isn't it interesting that Paul says, after preaching the gospel to the Romans, at the, at the end of his explanation in, verse, uh, or in chapter 8, 9, and 10, and 11 of Romans, in chapter 12, he says, then what is the proper response? He says, to be a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Offer ourselves as living sacrifices. To God, the idea and teaching of sacrifice is integral to the scriptures. In fact, it tells us of what God is willing to do for us, and while we are yet sinners, he died for us. Does the gospel become more sweet to you with age? It ought to. That he would take the full penalty for your sin and rebellion and my sin and rebellion, and he would take that out of the way and make us his righteousness, that we would be called children of God. What a wondrous story. What a wondrous truth that he would take Abram and do this for him and use him in these ways. And so we see that this contractual agreement then Abram's original question from verse 9 is now answered in verse 13. And we'll get into now our third point, which is ultimately what God will do, which is the certainty of the covenant. Notice what he says. He says, then the Lord, again in your Bibles, it should be capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain. Do you hear that? God listens to our questions. He's patient with our questions like a father who looks his son or daughter in the face, even when they've asked a question that they already know the answer to. And he says, no for certain. God is glorified in bringing us certainty. We just sang some songs about great is your faithfulness, that God is 
is, his faithfulness should not be questioned by us. We've read about all of human history that he's faithful. We know that to be true in our own lives, and yet we still sin against him. We still question his faithfulness. That shows us the depths of our own depravity and what he's delivering us from, that he is to be trusted. And so he says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. So he's, again, revealing a little bit more of this promise. He's like, yes, Abram, I'm going to do these things. Yes, I'm sovereignly leading you through your life and all that you've recently gone through in these circumstances. But he's also saying here that it's not yet. And I think for the child of God, one of the hardest things to do for children is to wait. You say, children, we're going to the park today. And you make the mistake of saying that at 8 a.m. Because what happens for the next four hours? Mommy, 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 why don't we go to the park? Why don't we go to the park? You're like, why did I say that? It just surprised them all the time. You know, it's 11.15, now we're going to the park. Um, but we give promises even to our own children that God is like this in a fatherly way, wanting to help us have that certainty. So he says, your offspring, they're going to be sojourners in the land. It's not going to be theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. Now, do you think Abram was really excited to hear that? I don't know, but this is prophetic from God in this vision, that not only are they, there's another nation involved that they're going to be enslaved to, in his sovereign plan for them. That's the story of Genesis and how uh, ultimately Joseph brings the opportunity for, uh, to be the link in the chain to bring um, uh, Jacob and his extended family to Egypt and they dwell there in Goshen for 400 years as the Lord prophesied right here. And so part of the promise is not just now, it's future tense. The promises of God are yes and amen in the sense that God is going to continue working these things in the course of history. And so he brings them certainty. Notice that he says in verse 2 that he's even sovereign over this situation. He says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Ultimately speaking of Egypt. Egypt's not named here, but it is speaking of Egypt. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Notice the the clarity of this prophecy. There's going to be a future country that comes out of this country that they'll be enslaved to. I think it would have been overwhelming to uh, Abram for if, if uh, God had actually stated Egypt here. But he doesn't. And isn't it interesting that God often keeps the details of the future from us and that is a blessing to us? Think about your own life. If all the tragedies and things that you've experienced in your life were all laid out before you, how overwhelming that would be. God in his kindness reveals it in time. It's the future glory. It's the future country that he's pointing Abram to. And notice he continues. He doesn't just talk about the country and the general speaking of what he's going to do through his ancestors. He brings it back in a personal way in verse 15. He says, as for you. Isn't that awesome? The gospel is a corporate thing, amen? It's call, he's calling all people to, to repent and, and turn in faith to him, but the gospel's also personal. Could it be that, that you also have not grasped the gospel in a personal way? You grasp it corporately, you hear, and you, you, you sit in church Sunday after Sunday, and you hear the gospel preached, but you personally do not obtain it. He turns to Abram and said, as for you, and notice you can underline this in your Bible that he's, he's, he's saying shall, he says, you shall 
you shall, verse 16, you shall, and notice what he says here, you shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, you're going to die, Abram, but I'm even there for you in that. You shall be buried at a good old age. So there you go. He's got the revelation that he's going to live longer and that God is going to accomplish things in and through his life. And then in verse 16, he returns back to the corporate nature of the covenant. He says, they shall come back here. Speaking of whom? The children of Israel. They will come back. Notice here in the fourth generation. And notice that God is sovereignly doing something, not just in Abram, not just in his family, but he's doing stuff in the whole world all at the same time. He says this very peculiar phrase, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's grace extends to even the most wicked people. They wake up, they see the same sunrise we do, they feel the same rain on their head, they taste the great crisp vegetables that we do, they eat the same food, they see the sunsets, they breathe in the nitrogen and oxygen that we breathe in, they are enjoying God's common grace. And yet, they think that their iniquities can go unchecked. They think that they are walking through this life in just freedom and a lack of care, but yet judgment awaits. John Piper, in one of his sermons years ago, used the Titanic as a, as a picture of this very truth that all the merrymaking that was happening on board the Titanic just moments before tragedy struck, having no idea that they were about to go into a cold, watery grave. Such is the, such is the world that sin is not yet complete. The Amorites have sh been shown the grace of God. Notice that God is revealing here that there's four generations. Are, he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Many people say you look at the God of the Old Testament and he's just blowing people up. Well, you look at passages like this and it says he is faithful, he is long-suffering, he is calling out, turn, repent before it's too late. Amen. And yet their sin is not yet complete. He is going to accomplish even in the sin of the nations his ultimate glory to humble them. Yes, God is glorified in the judgment of the wicked. Why? Because he's holy. And the amazing grace about all of this is that is not us. How is it that Abraham is escaping this? And Abram is left with this glorious covenant, this glorious future. Do you see now why Abram looked at this? He saw it, and he would be a fool not to take it. Such is the world today. Young people, things are flashing before your eyes. Do not be deceived. Those older saints, finish well. Keep the gospel in front of you. There are so many things to distract. This world is lost and it's going to judgment, and God is saying, come, my child, look at me. And so in the context of covenant, he says there in verse 17, when the sun was going down, it was getting dark. Behold, 
a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Its sacrifice needs a sacrifice, it needs two parties, and it needs fire. It's a consuming of the sacrifice. In fact, in the New Testament and Old Testament, you see this said in the, in the Old Testament that when a sacrifice was made, it says it was a well-pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, us meat eaters, like, yeah, God's a meat eater. Of course, we know what steak smells like. Of course, it sounds great. But that's not what he's referring to. The sweetness of atonement before a holy God. And even in the New Testament, it says in 1 Corinthians, the fragrance of Christ that emanates from us because of what Christ has done, that it, it has not only redeemed us, but it emanates out of us to other people. And, and so the context here, we see that this covenant is being cut, it's being consumed ultimately by God, and God is making this contractual agreement with Abraham based on his faithfulness, based upon what he has done in his great initiative and his grace in Abram's life. And Abram believes God. As we saw in verse 6, he believed this before all these contractual agreements happened. And so we have here the certainty of the covenant in verse 18. On that day, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, made a covenant with Abram. And notice he says here, to your offspring I give this land. From the river, great river, uh, to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, which were already mentioned in verse 16, the Canaanites, the Gergashites, and the Jebusites. Now, we, the scholars have looked at this. Why, why is it that God is mentioning all these names? But the fascinating thing about this is that these were all the people who were possessing the very promised land that Abram was hoping to get. And so God's certainty was coming to him by saying, Abram, all these people I'm going to remove from the land. And ultimately, he's going to do that through the conquest of Joshua. So that would be future tense. But notice if we compare this, turn back to chapter 2 of Genesis, that these are the same, this is the same way that he describes the Garden of Eden as far as the early part of this about the river. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Moses, of course, wrote this, but he also wrote uh, chapter 15 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became two rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold on that land is good. Bedellum and onyx and stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. Uh, it is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. So you see a fertileness. You see these four rivers. You see this, this um, lush environment, and yet this is what he is continuing to remind Abram of, that God is going to keep his promises, even the one who put mankind in Eden, location. Again, this is connecting the whole scriptures here. We are not meant to just live in a heavenly city. We are going to indwell the new heavens and new earth. God created us to dwell on earth. Not a knock against NASA, but you're not going to find another place in our great universe to live. 
God made us to live here. This is what, what, what he's doing, and he's going to do this in the new heavens and new earth. There's a place for his creatures to dwell. But he's going to ultimately remove these people, and he's going to fulfill his promise of bringing him into the land that he promised him. So, we see this contractual agreement. We see the promise, the call of this uh, agreement. We see the, um, the context of it, and we see the certainty of this covenant for him. What about us? Great. There's a guy named Abram that, we made a co- that God made a covenant with um, many years ago. What does that deal with me in 2023? Well, this great covenant-keeping God is not a God of just this book. He is a God who is alive and well. He is a God who is seeking your heart and he is calling you to repentance and faith and he's done this just like he did with Abram in initiating a relationship with you. And maybe you already have a relationship with him but God is calling you to go deeper with him, to follow after him with all your heart. That contractual agreement just as Abram had is set for us as well. It was done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sacrificed himself on your behalf. He died for your sin. He rose again that you might have life. And that is something that you must consider that he has done and you will give account to obedience to the gospel. But thirdly, I think there's a sense that for the people of God, for most of us here, there's a sense of certainty of this covenant. And I want to talk about this in, in kind of the, the form of past, present, and future, because this is really where I feel like the, the drive of this text has gone. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul said, so walk in him. How is your walk with Jesus going? Perhaps you've been realizing of your justification many years ago, but you've grown cold, and you find yourself wanting the very fire and passion of a fresh faith like you see described in Abram's life. Let me just encourage you. Let me just encourage you that all of us as believers go through times where we question what the Lord is doing. And he wants to assure us of the certainty of his covenant. And let me just remind you of this in very real ways that maybe you've missed. That God is doing this in the context of us gathering together each Lord's Day. There is a hope that we belong to a family, that God is ministering to us, that hopefully we're not just doing this by rote, this is what we do because it's the Lord's Day. No, we gather together because we're identified with the Lord, and our future is together, amen? This family is something that's going to endure. We have members that have passed away, and they've gone ahead of us, but we are going to join them. Most of the church of the past is present with Christ. And we tend to think they're dead and gone. They're not dead. They're very much alive. And so in this sense, we have to remember that, that this certainty of the covenant is yet to come. So he's forgiven us of our sin. We have hope in our battle against the flesh and our own sin in this time of our lives, and yet we need to look future. We need to glorify God in his future grace, in his future um, deliverance of us as his people. But I think in the midst of this, we also should be thinking the sense of mission. What is it that God still has us here for? Why is it that we're still here in human flesh? It was very clear from the scriptures 
that God is calling us to a mission, and corporately, but also in individual ways. And why we talk about the gospel so much is that if we can't get the understanding of the gospel, we are ultimately going to waste our lives. And, and this is important for us to understand because what God has accomplished in Christ, he is being, he is, he's literally incarnating it in his church today and living out in this generation the gospel through his people. And you will know if you've heard me preach long, I'm passionate about missions. I, I weep because I believe it's God's heart as well that for this present church season, in this generation, there are so few who are going. There are so few that are answering the call to take the gospel to foreign lands. And yet we look at the state of the world and we know that the only thing that will hasten the coming of Christ is the preaching to all nations. And you've, talked, I've, you've heard me talk before about the glory of God in the nations and how some of my greatest heroes are those who are translating the scriptures who spend their 40 hours a week uh, in, in exhausting deserts around the world that are spiritually dry and they give themselves to language study. For what purpose? To translate God's holy word to a people who don't even know how to read yet. That's faith. That's believing God's promises. Now, before you think I'm just trying to lay a guilt trip that all of you need to pack your bags and go to the uttermost parts of the world, I want you to see that if that's not you going, then it's you sending. And if it's not you sending, it's you praying. And it's the sense that God's mission becomes so overwhelming in our lives that the gospel just oozes out of us wherever we go and that it spreads to the nations. And it's exciting because even through modern technology, we can take the gospel to places that it hasn't gone in past generations. If God is passionate about his name, then we also are to take great glory and joy in who he is. We can understand the theology, the head knowledge of who God is, but unless we enjoy him, we'll never amount to anything. And so God is calling us to enjoy him and to take him and share him. And Abram will do this. We'll see this as a prophet. He stands for the Lord in multiple places in future chapters. We're going to see that God uses Abram and this covenant, ultimately, that we, it's foreshadowing of what's to come in Christ. But church, where are you this morning? Are you struggling with the certainty of your covenant with Christ that he has contractually made before you and God? He is a perfect mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has accomplished it all, but in what ways are you slacking in faith? Maybe you, like Abram, are trying to uh, wheel and deal like he did with the Egyptians and say, hey, Sarai, tell him that you're my sister. Or maybe you're dealing weird with um, the, the famine and you're, you're heading to Egypt and looking for human answers to what only God can bring. Or maybe in the context of this, you're questioning him. I don't know how the Lord will use this passage, but I challenge you to get with him and challenge yourself and the issues of this to look back at how the gospel is ultimately paving the path ahead of you and what you're called to do with in your life for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Genesis 15. We can read through it like a narrative and just see, 
Lord, you work through this man, Abram. We're thankful for that. But how often we miss the hard application of what you're doing in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would cement this text in our minds to help us to see your great glory, to see the need that we have for you, but Lord, to also hear the call that you chose to use human mouths to pass the torch to the next generation. And you use the likes of feeble, weak sinners that are redeemed to take your message to people who've never heard it. And while we pray that, Lord, you would raise up people for missions, some of us just need the courage to speak up to people that we already know need to hear the gospel across the hallway at our work or across the street or maybe friendships that we have or maybe we need to be more bold in our discussions on social media. Whatever the case, Lord, would you guard us and protect us? Would you help us to not waste our lives? That we can go to the grave with a smile on our face knowing that you are saying, well done. Oh, Lord, we wrestle against many things. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. We deal with our own flesh, the, the frailness of it, our own sin. Oh, God, would you deliver us from them all? And, Lord, make our lives a mosaic of your grace, a preaching of your great worth to a world that is just lost and dead and decaying. Would you breathe life to our community around us because of what you've done in and through us? And Lord, we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.